Hello, hello, and welcome to part two of Unpacking Angry Black Women. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Rachel Levy-Bell. She is part of the Department of Psychiatry at Boston University School of Medicine. And I'm going to read her bio really quickly. I also did not have her introduce herself on the recording. So this, I'll get better at that in the future, I promise. Um, but yes, Dr. Rachel Levy-Bell is an assistant professor of psychiatry at the BU School of Medicine, and she's the associate program director and director of clinical training of the Mental Health Counseling and Behavioral Medicine program. And she's been a clinical psychologist for 20 years, and she's currently, um, she currently has a private practice in Boston, Massachusetts. Her areas of specialization are trauma, grief, bereavement, personal identity development in the context of culture, and mood disorders. And she's dedicated her practice to working with people of color, particularly young emerging adults who are navigating the nuances of adulthood. Dr. Levy Bell earned her BA in psychology from Clark University and received her doctorate from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, where she graduated with honors. Her dissertation examined the relationship between coping style, spirituality, and adaptation to HIV disease in African-American women, which we'll actually hear more about later. Dr. Levy Bell was an intern at Cook County Hospital's Women's and Children's HIV Clinic, and she completed her residency training at Temple University Hospital. The focus of her residency training was on assessment and therapy with cardiac and pulmonary transplant candidates and inpatient psychiatry. Her postdoctoral training was conducted at the Department of Mental Health's Dr. Solomon Carter Fuller Mental Health Center. Dr. Levy Bell's clinical and research experiences have consistently focused on working with multicultural populations in the urban community and hospital-based environments. As a counselor and educator for almost as a counselor educator for almost two decades, she has dedicated her career to providing supervision, mentorship, and training to counselors, psychologists, and medical students. And as an educator, she is invested in enhancing diversity, equity, and inclusion in the counseling environment. Dr. Levy's clinical and research experiences are in the HIV, or in the areas of HIV disease in multicultural populations, cross-cultural psychology, behavioral medicine in the realm of organ transplantation, transplantation, and disaster psychology. Over the past several years, she has provided several consultations to the Massachusetts, Massachusetts Department of Mental Health on training professional clinical staff on how to work effectively with people with HIV and chronic mental illness. Dr. Levy Bell has been a consultant on HIV prevention and mental health treatment to various community-based agencies and school systems. And she was also a clinician at, for the Federal Emergency Man Management Team through the Department of Mental Health Crisis Counseling Network. So she has an extensive resume and extensive experience dealing with communities of color. And this episode, well, this segment of the episode rather, was really fun to, I guess, record with her because there were many a word dropped on her part. I'm so excited to share that with you all. But so yeah, let's just get into the episode. Enjoy. what is the angry black girl stereotype to you so interesting so what is it to me so to me as a black woman um i mean i think the angry the angry black woman stereotype is you know someone who doesn't know her place someone mm. who's angry for no reason 
Like there's no validity to her voice, um, regardless of the tone and pitch, always being perceived as being a negative. Um, You know, the angry black woman is someone to be feared and also someone to be ignored, someone to be disempowered, um, someone who, who doesn't know her place, right? Right. Um, I mean, those are just some of the things that, that come to mind. Um, and the angry black woman is, I really feel, you know, from a colonialist era, it's, it's something, it is a label that is put upon us by others for the purpose right. of disempowerment, for the purpose to shun, to quiet, to segregate, to marginalize, to disenfranchise. Um, that is the angry black woman and the angry black woman can come from social status or not, (laughs) which is also very interesting. I actually want to touch on that point you said about anger, because I feel like our society demonizes anger and acts as if it's not, you know, sort of a valid emotion. Mm -hmm. So what are the best ways to kind of express anger and then also to deal with anger? And how should people receive other people's anger, rather? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, you, you know, you make a good point that anger, it, I mean, it's always associated with a negative emotion. And I think part of why it's associated with a negative emotion is, like, even physiologically, right? When someone is angry, your body is tense, it's tight, your breathing could be more labored, it's more difficult for you to put words together. So it's like your body, your mind, your emotions, and even your spirit and soul are in such an agitated state. And that's what people respond to. But what people should really understand from a psychological perspective and a sociological perspective is someone is angry for a reason. And rather than try to suppress or push away the negativity, we as a society need to work on understanding where that anger comes from. So when someone comes to you and they appear angry, right? Because then I say appear on purpose because maybe they're frustrated. Maybe they're disillusioned. Maybe they are so harmed that their only reaction is to push back. One should come to them and say, I want to understand where this is coming from because it's just another way of communicating how someone is feeling, right? If you walk into a room and somebody's laughing, you have no problem saying, what was so funny, right? Right. But when someone comes at you and they're angry or perceived to be angry, no one says what's making you angry. It's stop being angry and you push away because no one wants to deal with that anger. And there's the assumption that from anger will come violence, right? Whether it's emotional or physical violence right and i can see how oh yeah i can see how with the angry black woman stereotype you know that supposition of violence of black and brown people too is heightened i would imagine but Mm -hmm. you also made me think of how you said you people should be more understanding to seek to understand what the actual emotion is and I feel like in our world, Black girls are just not given understanding. Like we're not worthy of understanding to other mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. How, 
how do you how do we deal with that in a in a professional space in, a, in an academic space when the people who you know are supposed to be your colleagues your peers maybe they're your mentors your professors mm-hmm. how do you deal with that when they don't even have that impetus motivation to even come to you with that sort of level of understanding when you're expressing a valid emotion mm-hmm. i think it starts with you know, self-validation as black women, as, as, or black women, brown girls, um, you know, we are often, we're either ignored or we're treated as objects, (laughs) right? Right. And I think it really starts with, I mean, there's lots of talk about racial socialization, right? And, you know, how do we socialize our children to navigate in a world where they're often um, disrespected, diminished, not seen. Mm. And so I think it starts with how do we teach our, 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 our little girls how to have self-respect, um, how to have a voice and to own that voice and to, to have resilience and to value that voice and to feel comfortable, whether in working with a friend, a colleague or stranger to say, when you said that, it made me feel this, or that statement is wrong, or that statement is inaccurate. So I think it all starts with empowerment, because I think underneath the angry Black woman, or what the perceived angry Black woman, mm-hmm. okay, because we don't want their language to become our own, is the strong Black woman, right? right. And that's, and I think they took the strong black woman who is built who is built to be resilient, both emotionally, physically, and to seek positions of leadership, to seek voice, to protect their family and loved ones and communities. And they've taken that very positive image of strong black women mm-hmm. and I think turned it into, oh, well, they're just angry. It's like, well, maybe I am, but is, is, is it that I'm angry or is that your fragility? Is that your white fragility responding to the depth and the strength of my voice, right? right? Is it the white supremacy that says I should be in my place and I shouldn't talk to my professor? I shouldn't say, you know, the data you're sharing is inaccurate or it's skewed, right? I think we have to educate and empower Black women to call out when those things happen. And and again, call out in in your sophisticated voice, whatever that looks like, you know? And, And the way you say something and what you say something could be very different, right? So what you say is really important. Yeah. Um, and how you express yourself is important, but you should express yourself. Does that make right. sense? No, it does. But something I've been thinking about recently as well is this idea of a strong Black woman and the effect that both of these stereotypes, the angry Black woman, the strong Black woman, you know, what like what impacts do they have on the mental health of Black women? Because I feel like, many of my friends especially like and even myself you know we have a hard time being vulnerable Mm -hmm. and i i guess my question is what what really are the impacts of having these sort of like very strong emotions Mm -hmm. being placed on us 
how how do we navigate that, understand that, cope with that? Mm-hmm. But you know, I think you're asking really important questions. I think why it's so important that you're tuning into mental health or behavioral health is because I think that's an area we don't speak enough of. You know, I do still think that there's stigma in the black community around mental health and how, and what does that mean? And, um, and what impact does that have on ourselves and our communities? And I think there are some really positive aspects of being, you know, a strong black woman, right? So to be resilient is amazing, you know, because that means you can get through anything like our ancestors have. Um, to be strong-minded, to be strong-willed, to have strong self-esteem and strong self-efficacy. These are all really positive aspects that for example, like a woman like you, you know, possesses to aspire to the things you're, you're even doing here today. So there's lots of positive aspects of being a strong black woman. I think what gets so difficult is exactly what you talked about is often we're taught to be resilient means you can't be vulnerable, right? right. And But vulnerability is, is the ways in which humans connect with each other, right? That allowing yourself to to be open without judgment and and shame and as strong black women in trying to say we can persevere we don't need to be vulnerable at times can open us up to a myriad of stresses um, that can negatively impact our, our our mental health so for example you know, you want to be strong and you don't want to say anything. You're sitting in a classroom and you're hearing all of this oppressive language, whether it's from your peers, your friends, or your um, educators. And holding that in can actually negatively impact your self-esteem, negatively impact your self-efficacy. It could open up the doors for feelings of depression, feelings of pervasive anxiety of, you know, I'm strong black woman, I should have voice, but if I have voice, then I'm the angry black woman. And you're in this almost uh, identity struggle with yourself. And here you are just sitting in a classroom, you know, trying to learn or out at, at your job, just trying to have your career. And there's this extra layer of do I speak or do I not? And what are the implications of that? Um, I think other areas that cause concern about being a strong black woman is that not being vulnerable and saying, I don't need help. I'm going to, I'm independent. I'm resilient, but sometimes everybody needs support. Right. And I think that's why you see, you know, I think what's um, underrepresented in the research is the level of postpartum depression in women um, in terms of, you know, many women suffer from postpartum depression, but it's not talked about in the African-American community because we're supposed to be resilient and strong and take care of our families and not own that we need more. So I think there's a whole list of ways in which we as Black women can be both positively and negatively impact by holding on to these images of ourselves. I have two things I want to touch on because you made me think of them. Um, In terms of the impact of stresses on your body, this might be more alternative sort of medicine, but I was looking at this kind of image that showed like certain parts of the body 
respond to certain things. Like if you held in sorrow, for example, it like manifests in your heart. And that's why a lot of black women suffer with heart disease and things like that. Is there validity? To, is that is there validity to that sort of thinking? Like us holding in these stresses not only impacts our mental health, but also impacts our physical health in terms of heart disease, you know, diabetes manifesting into all these things. Absolutely. You know, I'm not a biologist, <laughs> so I want to put that out. Nor am I a physician, just just a psychologist. Um, but I think there's plenty of data to look at the impact of stress and trauma. I mean, I think for right. many Black women, you know, when we look at what are the psychological impacts of being labeled an angry Black woman or holding the responsibility of being a strong Black woman, you know, we know that we experience these anxiety, these feelings of anxiety around those images constantly. It's never just once. It's like throughout your lifetime from early childhood to, to late adulthood and geriatrics, we are yeah. constantly being bombarded with these experiences. And so that causes a buildup of physiologically emotional and cognitive stress. And there are lots of data out there that speak to the impact of trauma on brain development, um, the impact of trauma on a neural development. Um, so there is lots of literature out there on, you know, how it affects, you know, serotonin reuptake, you know, and what keeps us happy. And, you know, so I think there's lots of biological data out there that says that these types of racial traumas, I'll call them, are, are things that impact Black women across the lifespan. It's not just mm -hmm. a moment. It's, it's, it's a lifetime experience. And I think that's what people don't appreciate in the moment. They're like, oh, well, it, she's just angry about what happened now. It's like, no, you know, or she's just being strong because of that. We are being strong and have these emotions because of everyone who has come before us. You know, everyone yeah. who had to fight to allow me to be in this position to give my voice. And I think in the African-American community, there's a lot of acceptance around sort of community heredity, you know, yeah. and living the life of our ancestors that we don't just live for today or for ourselves, but for our children, our parents, our grandparents, and those we never were fortunate to know. Right. I also wanted to ask about essentially i guess coping mechanisms to deal with that stress like what are some tactics that um or methods that black women and girls can use to protect their peace so to speak to let go of the, the stress because this lifetime of stress really is killing us so how do we Absolutely. how do we prevent that i think part of it is finding community um it was interesting i was i was actually running a seminar the other day you know working with students of color and one of the couple of students um, so eloquently shared that when they were growing up well first they they feel invisible mm -hmm. on campus you know and part of their their whole socialization is that they always felt invisible and that people mm -hmm. non-people of color never invited them to say well what's your opinion what are your thoughts I, I relate. Which, yeah, so that in the classroom, and I'm guilty of this as an educator, I'm like, tell me what you think, tell me what you think. And I don't realize that, and I, I'm learning that 
I may be the first person that actually asked, you know, sitting in these white spaces, what's your thoughts as an African American woman, as a black woman, I should say. And so I think part of it is, you know, to cope is to find community. Mm. So to find other black women who can have that conversation around, oh, you experienced that. Oh, that was a microaggression. I, I didn't even realize it. I, it's just something you get used to, right? So right. I, I think the number one coping is that we, we need to reach out and support and lift one another and validate. I think that's the key is to validate how painful these experiences could be, how impactful these experiences could be. And I think in finding community, part of that work is also celebrating your culture. As black women, we are from many different cultures. And I think, but many of us live in cultures that don't always feel like our own. So I think finding spaces, but more so we need to create more spaces to celebrate who we are and to engage in dialogue and engage in learning more about black people who have done amazing things. Not just the people we know in mainstream that, we're allowed to talk about, (laughs) but, you know, empowering learning that we are, are, we have, we are many voices, but we are all strong. We are relevant. We we are present. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that can really help cope cope people to cope because they realize they're not alone. Because I think often in these moments when you're being accused of being an angry black woman, you feel very alone yeah and isolated and then that leads to more isolation right and more isolation and then suddenly you almost become invisible to yourself Mm. that's true yeah Mm -hmm. that was a word okay i we've touched on this idea of support and i think something i've seen recently um is this kind of outpouring for, from Black women and Black trans women um, and members of the LGBTQ plus community is, you know, they've been asking Black men to support Black women. Mm-hmm. And I feel like for the longest while, um, even in my personal life, every time I felt down these past few months, it was always Black women in my DMs giving me tips, giving me advice. Um, meanwhile, I had like maybe three Black male friends text me to ask me how I'm doing, text me ask me what, what's going on. And yeah, we're all, you know, going through this thing, especially now, um, feeling so many emotions, but Black women, I feel like, have to support everyone else mm-hmm. and then support ourselves and then also be on the front lines and then also share the, share the resources. And it's like, well, well, dang, how can y'all support us? So my question is, how can, you know, non-black people black men um better support the black women in their lives you know i those like really thoughtful question i mean i think what what resonated for me is that whole concept of intersectionality Mm -hmm. right because as a black woman we have to deal with how does society see, see us as black and what are the stereotypes they put on for us Then we have to think of society, well, we're also a woman. So how are we treated from a gender perspective, regardless of the color of the skin Mm -hmm. of the person, but gender is very much part of it. 
on top of that, now I'm a black woman, you know, right. uh, all together. It's almost like three different concepts. And so I think there's no one answer to it. I think all men, black men, need to think differently about how you treat women and what yeah. women, women need, mm-hmm. right? And then on top of that, as black women, what do you what, what do you think we need? So I think it's more having conversations on inter, intersectionality, and that as as black people we have we have needs, and as women we have different needs. And right. you're right again, just from ancestry, and, and you know, and when black women were enslaved and black men were enslaved, there was you know families were separated. You know, part of how we were kept in our places we couldn't get angry about what was happening because they would sell your children. They would separate you from your families. And I think, uh, but yeah, we were responsible for taking care of the families regardless of the pain and the pains we continue to hold. So I think our, our black men, while they they are going through, they they have their own sort of stereotypes they have to deal with. Sometimes I wonder if they don't have the bandwidth to realize you know, for me to raise you up, you need, we need to raise each other up. So I think more dialogue about that um, is really, really important. And, you know, sadly, I think we were seeing the preponderance of violence against black men in our society, but more and more, we're seeing it against black women. And black trans women, especially. And, um, And yes, black trans women. And I think there's still so much work to be done within our own communities around accepting trans populations like they're part of us for us to marginalize others when we have been through that is 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 such a step backwards you know for our people and i think we you we can't say we want we want we want acceptance and we want equity without wanting Mm -hmm. equity for all of our people and for all trans people regardless of color but i think that's another layer within the black community around um, sexism, mm-hmm. around you know homophobia. You yeah. know, there's just a lot of work to be done. But I think this is a time where we can come together as black people to realize we are all in this community, and it's time to break down these walls and create a bigger stadium for all of us to have a place and a space. This is about Black women, but I do have a question about Black men and Black women. Like, is there a psychological divide between us? Like, what, why can't we connect to each other? Like, what's going on there? Is there anything to explain that? Because for me, I think of toxic masculinity, but I'm not sure if that's necessarily the only answer or, you know, how we can better connect to each other, how we can better support each other. You know, I don't think, I mean, I think, again, these are great food for thought questions and important questions. And I don't know if there's any right right answer. I mean, I I think it starts, honestly, with with parenting. And that, that means whoever is raising children is, you know, when we are socializing our children, and this is regardless of race, again, this is where intersectionality and gender is, you know, what is your role as a child growing up? What is your role as a young, a young boy? What is your role as a young girl? And teaching early on these concepts of community and support. And, 
you know, I think recognizing that, you know, black men, you know, it's, you know, that, that sort of um, pipeline, you know, from um, what do they call it? The pipeline to incarceration, you know, like the different opportunities that, that are there. Um, and then also, you know, with women who get paid less, you know, in the, in the community or also marginalized or more often dismissed or objectified. I think we have different issues and unfortunately it's based on gender and who we fear and why we fear them. Um, but I think, again, it's about engaging our youth in conversations around respect, equity, inclusion, support i think it has to start when we're young and to mm -hmm. grow and grow through the lifespan and understand that we all have responsibilities in this community to, to help each other rise you know um and i think often unfortunately not there are a lot of amazing black fathers out there raising mm -hmm. children so i want to be very clear about that i wish we would see more images of that in, yeah. in social media and unfortunately we don't but I think there is the stereotype of, you know, mama, auntie will take everyone in, mm -hmm. you know, how many of us grew up with our cousins and or, <laughs> or cousins, they may be blood or not, but they're, they're cousins, yeah. they're family, you know, um, everyone, I mean, I have more aunties than I know what to do, do with, but, but that's community. So I think I, with our, our young boys is socializing them to have different roles within our community, right? Yeah. That, you are going to raise the children and yes, you're going to work, but you're going to take care of Nana, you know, you're going to do right. all these things. And so I think it's about even within our own community, changing the way we socialize across genders is going to be really important. Is there a way to, I don't know why I thought about this, but you know, is there a way to kind of protect the innocence of black children? Cause I feel like, I was thinking of parentification in general within communities of color, but then I was also thinking of the fact that, you know, black children come into this consciousness of race so early. Um, and I, I just wonder how can you keep joy in their life? How can you keep like that innocence in their life? Cause I've been seeing so many videos of little kids on social media crying at the fact that they could get shot by the police. Yeah. It was very jarring for them. So how do we, you know, be poignant about the realities of life, but also let them be children, let them have joy. I think the key to that is making sure that we maintain positive Black images, mm. positive Black stories and history, and share that with our children, right? Mm -hmm. And to have literature and children's books that are focused on you know, the protagonist or the lead is a, a black child, you know, who is saving the world and, and you know, and, and doing and creating history and science. I, I think when we socialize our children, you know, as black folk, we, we unfortunately have to have these, these very real conversations. Mm -hmm. But sometimes those are the only conversations we have. Uh, and I think, I think our white counterparts need to have more racial socialization and understand the impact of their race. 
uh, on society. But I do think is there's not enough, for example, it all starts with our education system. I think that's a big issue is that, you know, when I think about my own education, other than a handful of black figures, Mm -hmm. we weren't talked about in the context of science, mathematics, engineering, Mm -hmm. nursing, um, construction, you know what I mean, architecture. We were only, most of my images anyway, perhaps they're different from you and your younger generation, are all about civil rights leaders. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and we're, you know, 30 years apart almost. So, and there's, that's still what you learned. And so there is, there's no education or imagery other than civil rights and sports. (laughs) <laughs> you know and that's the problem whereas you're learning about in every other subject all these amazing other people and their achievements yeah. so and I think education could be we know education is a protective factor we know education could lead to economic prosperity uh, we know that education will most likely lead because of um, you know occupational prosperity can reduce health disparities right Right. um it can help reduce mental health disparities Mm -hmm. so i think there's a root in education but you know as a parent or guardian raising children we have to own that piece more as a culture and not just depend on our school system to socialize our children to what it means to be a black person in america right um, as a black woman in the mental health space, do these stereotypes ever affect you? And if so, how do you deal with it? Well, I think absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, as a, as a so I, when you ask me that, are you asking me as a psychologist, as, as a woman navigating this world, educator, what, what were you thinking about? Um, as a psychologist, as a, a working professional, or even as an educator, because I know you teach in the School of Medicine as well. Yes, um, absolutely. So how do you deal with that? I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I too, you know, I, I'm not alone in having been, you know, someone walks up, you know, a colleague walks into a room, someone who doesn't know me, and I've had assumptions made, like, oh, you must be the secretary. Right. Oh, you must be the staff person or call me, call me by the wrong name or when they hear I'm from New York City, make assumptions that, oh, you must have been part of the Fresh Air Club. It's like, no, I, I went to regular camp, you know, like I would have loved to be, but that's, you know, but so I, I think as a human navigating the space, I am very much intermittently bombarded by these racial stereotypes, implicit biases, microaggressions. Um, you know, part of my work as a psychologist and what I dedicate myself to is really working with young adult women of color and really trying to ha- help them navigate their own personal identity development and in the context of race, in the context of mm. what's happening socio-politically, environmentally. Right. And really when I work with someone, obviously they're coming to me because they're you know just grappling with mental health issues. Culture is part of that conversation. It's embedded in that conversation. Um, 
and that's important to acknowledge and it you know it, it pains me to see you know these young 20 20 year olds just feeling so angry at the way they're being treated or disrespected mm-hmm. in education in life as graduate students um, as undergraduate students so you know it, it impacts me to see the generations but i'm learning even in all my years having really been in mostly white spaces that my voice has been growing, you know, Mm. Um, even this, you know, this past year, I'm recognizing that with colleagues I've known for 20 years that have microaggressed, you know, on and off, you know, for a long Mm -hmm. time, I'm saying, I'm starting to say, it's, well, it's easy for you to say you don't want to have the conversation because that's your privilege. So I'm even learning as a psychologist to utilize my voice more um, when I'm having personal interactions. And so I'm not just a professional, but I'm a person. And I think I've been so inspired, I think by the domestic and international support that this movement of, you know, Black Lives Matter has taken on. And so I I can't say it hasn't changed me, you know, in the past year or so. and it's been impactful as a parent too, and sort of, you know, how I socialize my child um, to go into this world and to navigate this world. You touched on something very important um, about culture being inherently embedded in therapy, um, because that's something for me, because throughout my life I've had two therapists and both of them have been black women. And I think that has, you know, greatly enhanced my experience. Because, um, you know, even with professors, like they get it wrong too, and they're supposed to be these educated academics. And, you know, so I was thinking about the fact that at BU, our own school, and many schools like BU, a lot of predominantly white institutions, um, the behavioral health department has absolutely no black or Latinx therapists, I don't think. Uh, and it's been a big point of struggle for a lot of my friends. I've had friends who've tried to work with them to get more black therapists. Um, and I guess my question is, can a department like that even be effective to serve that student population? That's a great question. I think, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, at BU and at many institutions, unfortunately, there's not enough representation. And I think it's complicated. I think it's easy to make assumptions that right. well, if they're, they don't have any black therapists, then that means they don't care. Mm-hmm. And as someone in, you know, who's in administration, right. some of it is they care, they're trying, but there are some reasons they're not attracting black therapists. Mm. And I think the key is, well, what is that about? You know, um, I think, you know, depending on where you are regionally, it has an impact for sure, for sure. I think the picture looks different in different parts of the country. Um, So I hate to say that they don't, you know, they're not equipped to serve black people. I I don't think it's that they're not equipped. It depends on their expertise and, and also their desire and their desire and who they are as as therapists and how they connect and how they realize the, the importance of culture in mental health and mental health treatment. So I think it's going to be depending on the person, but I think it's looking closer at like, why aren't you getting these folks and what initiatives are you taking 
to make sure you do have more therapists of color. Um, I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm one of the external providers for BU mm-hmm. students, because I recognize you don't have this, you know, and you yeah. need it. And, you know, I'm open to any students who need behavioral health issues, but I'm very clear that I want to be identified as someone to work particularly with, you know, students of color because there's such a need. Um, I actually also want to encourage more students to go into our field because that's the other reality. I don't think we have enough black therapists, um, uh, male or female, particularly, mm-hmm. yeah. particularly male. It's really difficult. Um, so I think that's something I would like to see our community recognize. And again, I think some of it is stigma and, and all of yeah. that, but, but I think that's something we have to create and universities need to support um, and and figure out how to do that better and how to do that from the start, not just when something goes wrong. Is that if you're starting a center, what is it that you need? If you have money for resources, who do you need to be bringing in and and making it happen? Really being action oriented and doing what it takes to get there. What motivated you to become um, a therapist, a psychologist? Oh my goodness, okay. <laughs> um, to, to be perfectly candid, I think having grown up in a multicultural, multi-ethnic family, right. um, you know, coming from black, dis- black descent, and white descent, mm-hmm. Jewish descent, you know, I really was able to see the the ways in which my families interacted, both positive and, and negative, right. uh, and bore witness to some of the stereotypes they each had of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I was always naturally interested in interpersonal relationships um, yeah. across cultures. But for me, what was most impactful is, um, you know, I thought myself to be a young educated woman or young girl, I should say, growing up in the 80s is when the HIV pandemic hit and really had a sense of, well, I know how you get HIV, you don't get HIV. And then come to find out that my aunt had contracted HIV and Mm. was really saddened by that. But what really was the game changer was when I had seen her the first time after her diagnosis and she went to hug me like she did every other time I would come over and I flinched. Right. And I hurt her. I hurt mm-hmm. her deeply. And yes, I was young. I was in high school. But it, re- it showed me that if, I, if I'm someone who knows how it's contracted, and yet this is how I treat someone I, I love deeply, then I've got to make a difference, you know, and I've got to make sure people aren't treated negatively because of their HIV diagnosis. It's not who they are or what they've done it's something that has happened to them. And so I made it my mission to do HIV education, particularly working with African-American women, um, African-American women suffering from substance use, um, HIV diagnosis. And that sort of like really catapulted me into psychology and counseling and destigmatizing um, mental health and behavioral issues in the black community. So that was the start and most of my career has been dedicated to that. That is so amazing. That's really cool. Um, how can we 
I actually want, I want to make sure I touch on this part, but how can we kind of combat the stigma specifically of homophobia, transphobia um, within the black community? What are some ways that we can do that? I think just like education and, and stepping right. back. And I know I keep coming back to it, but it's educate because education is, is a dialogue. It's sharing of information for the purposes of growth and development of our society. And I think it's just so important to knock down ignorance and to mm -hmm. realize race is a social, socially constructed concept. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you have to really think about that in the context of the fact that we are all of the human race. We are all of the human race. And we can't, again, we can't say we wanted to be treated in a way but treat others so differently. And I think we as a black community need to reflect on our own experiences of oppression, not just in what we've experienced, but what have we done to others and need to take a better look. So just like we're asking some of our white counterparts to do that, to look at your privilege, your, your supremacy, how have we suppressed trans queer people? Right. And how do we not, as victims, victimize even more others? Exactly, yeah. Because that's the key, is getting people to step out of their experiences, own their experiences, but understand that someone else has their own experiences and to be, to come more from a place of acceptance and to embrace others, particularly those that have been have been and continue to be harmed and beaten and abused and psychologically damaged. Why do that to people in our own community? It's almost like we're our own worst enemy. We're doing it to ourselves. We don't need anyone to harm us if we're doing it to ourselves. Right. What are some signs for Black women to recognize when it comes to understanding their mental health? Well, I think it, you know, it comes down to thinking about if, if you're struggling with mental health, some of the ways in which you know that something's going on is that you don't feel like yourself and you don't feel like yourself for an extended period of time, right? So everyone has a bad day and you can feel sad or something made you anxious, but are you noticing that you're feeling certain feelings more often than not? Are are whatever those feelings are, whether they're anxiety or depression, are they impacting your ability to function? So if you're a student, do you notice you're more withdrawn in class? You're more withdrawn um, from socializing with your peers? You're, you're not doing things you would normally do on a consistent basis, right? It's almost like you're stepping out of your life for a little bit. And if these, whatever mood you're experiencing is impacting you in your work life, your social life, your family life, right? Often more withdrawal, then those are signs and symptoms that there's something more serious underlying what's happening. Mm -hmm. And that's when you want to develop coping skills to understand why is it that you're withdrawing or why is it that you're engaging in high risk behaviors whatever that may look like that you would not have ordinarily done and that's when it's important 
um, to really seek help and to understand, you know, is this something with my chemistry? Is, are there some changes going on there? Is, are there life circumstances that are, are causing me to feel these feelings on a more regular basis? Um, am I not coping the way I used to? If I used to work out all the time and I'm not, what's happening with that? Are there changes in your eating habits, your sleeping habits? all things that you want to pay attention to and you know are you feeling increased feelings of shame and guilt um, that's something to think about are you feeling loss right a loss of a sense of self a loss of a sense of independence um, are you in relationships that you wouldn't necessarily be in that are harmful those are things to think about mm. understanding what do healthy relationships look like I think is very important um, for women in general to think about and what are our expectations of our own health and healthy relationships. What are some coping mechanisms that people can use, whether that's like breath exercises or, you know, things like that, that people can use like to combat just say, minor episodes of <laughs> depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm very big believer in just deep breathing, progressive muscle relaxation is really, really helpful. I, I like coping mechanisms that get your mind and your body in tuned with each other. Mm. Um, taking some time every day to be mindful. So anything, you know, yoga is really helpful with mindfulness and, mm. and being in the moment and being present. Um, you know, think about, you know, what are some natural coping things that we actually do every day? We just don't label them that. So right. if you're someone that likes to journal, are you journaling every night? Are you getting these emotions out on, on paper? Um, you know, gratitude jars. Are we putting, are we reminding ourselves in this very painful time, right? Um, what we are grateful for. And that could be grateful for loved ones, experience, the fact that we can breathe, that we can still breathe um, is so important to have that. And even sometimes have that with our peers, <laughs> you know, we don't right. say, you know, I'm so grateful to have you in my life or that you let me just be myself. Um, I think in, in, in mindfulness can happen, whether it's through meditation, yoga, um, I, I really like aromatherapy. Um, there's mm. research out there about how different senses can impact our bodies physiologically. And I think, um, you know, scents really keep us in the moment. Um, and right. something, you know, I like coping skills that don't take long, but there are now, <laughs> right? Because in this busy time, I don't have time again. Like you have 15 to 20 minutes to, do, to dedicate to yourself every night. That's okay. all I, I, I 20 minutes, 20 minutes is the sweet spot to just sit and be in your thoughts and reflect on your day. Mm -hmm. And the other piece of coping is to always have, have goals for yourself, you know, right. and, and that's part of self-empowerment and black woman empowerment is what are your goals for you? Don't ask someone what you should be doing. What do you want to be doing and how are you going to make that happen and have a plan, 
you know mm -hmm. i think that's really important and and the goal should be achievable not these huge not like i want to live a happy life well everyone wants to but you know what does that mean for you well i want to make sure i call my family every week i t i touch base with my sister i mm -hmm. say something loving to my peer you know um but just remind yourself of what it is you need to make yourself happy or feel good. I think music is essential. I think that could be very powerful in regulating moods. Sometimes listening to music that lets you get the emotions out. And sometimes it's just music that helps you sit with those emotions, I think is a really important thing. Um, Get your Spotify playlist together, you know, and, and have different playlists for different, for different times. Um, right. I think if you're someone that practices spirituality or religion, you know, they're different, that to make sure you're tapping into that, those parts of yourself, I think that's often really ignored, that who is your spiritual self and right. how do you find meaning? And if you're someone that's a believer in prayer, when is the last time you took the time to pray or found a spiritual religious community of your own, especially if you're someone not living at home, right? So that's part of my message of building community in your cultural sphere. I think that could be really essential for coping. And these are my last two questions or smaller, sure. but um, do you have any favorite affirmations that you like to give to your your clients particularly like in the 18 to 25 age group like words of affirmations that type of thing that's a great that's a great, i don't know if i have a particular there's a quote i i, I do you i don't always remember it it's it's, it's on my uh, my daughter's wall it's actually by um uh oh, janae monet is that her name Oh, Janelle Monet. Okay, okay. Janelle Monet. It's it's just like, like love your uniqueness. Like be happy in your uniqueness. I think mm -hmm. is really important. Um, I think self compassion. That's a big one that I share with clients all the time. That the concept of be as kind to yourself as you would to another, right? And often you know, when folks are struggling, you're often beating yourself up. Like, I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. It's always the, I'm not enough, or I should, I should. It's like, maybe just hold the space that it's okay that you can't right now and accept yourself and your feelings for where you're at. And you will figure out where you need to go. Right. You know, that self, like, don't apologize for what you feel. Accept that you feel. Own that you feel it. Let let it let it let it let it sink in, but then let it go. It's kind of like riding like I talk about therapies like riding a wave. Yeah. You know, you can either go with it or you can let it crash you. <laughs> right. So, so I I say the next time you're in that situation, like I I get folks to visualize being in an ocean. You know, when you're little, you, you know, you walk in a little bit, and it's cold and you run from the waves, but then you get older and you got to get in the waves. Otherwise, you're not going to really get wet because you're bigger now. Right. And so just imagine yourself in life walking into the ocean. And sometimes you just got to lift your feet and trust yourself and you will ride mm -hmm. that wave. Mm, I like that. 
Um, and the last thing was, well, maybe there's one more after this, but um, <laughs> my, my, I wanted to kind of leave people with, um, I guess, a, a way to ask for help, because sometimes people have a hard time vocalizing their emotions. So what are some, like, phrases, I guess, Medi ready-made phrases that you can use to say, hey, I need assistance. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Well, I think, I mean, I think just turning to a friend, um, sometimes it may be a mentor that you trust, a colleague that you trust, family, and just say, you know, I think I'm having a hard time. I don't know what, I don't know what it is. I don't know why it is. But I just think I'm having a hard time and, and I I just wanna I just wanna feel better, you know. Um, mm. I just wanna feel better. Do you do you have any thoughts about that? Um, but also in the I think the the statement that's that we have to really empower, you know, black women to say that it's back to your point, uh, Solange, around vulnerability. Mm. And vulnerability is not weakness. I think vulnerability is strength. It is vulnerability gives us the power to be who we are in our authentic selves. And so we've got to take that word back. Right. Yeah. And, and take it out of the negative pile and put it in the positive pile. Because with vulnerability, we're able to connect with ourselves so that we prevent having mental health issues. With vulnerability comes the ability to say, hey, I'm, I'm having a hard time. I need more so I can keep my resilience going, right? That keeps that positive piece going. So I think we've got to own that, accept that, embrace it, and use it to propel us forward in, in our health. Um, again, in, our, in our, the, the health of our spirit, our psyche, um, our physicality, I think that's all important. And I think the other piece that I think is important is for each other, for us to look out for each other. Because yeah. as you're saying, like not everyone has the words to say, I, I need help or I need support. I think as a community, if we see our brother, our sister, or even a stranger in our community struggling, it's okay to say, hey, is there something I can do? So I think yeah. if we can commit to that as a community, I think it will fight stigma. I think it'll reinforce the, the importance of health, whatever that looks like. It supports community and, and, um, and, and fellowship. And so that's what's important. Like we, if we are, we are collectivist people and we have to remind ourselves of that, which is why it's important to think about, you know, the LGBTQ queer community, like if we're collectivists, we have to be together in this. Mm -hmm. If we want to be healthier as black folk, we've got to help each other and not wait for the other to ask. We have, we also should do the asking and the supporting. So I think that's the two sides of the coin that we don't always talk about when we talk about seeking support and seeking mm -hmm. help. Because sometimes we don't always recognize that we need it. Yeah. Right? You could be in it so deep that sometimes you need someone just to reach a hand. Yeah. It could become your new normal, to be honest. Yeah. Absolutely. And it could be your strength. 
Yeah. My last question, I promise this is the last one. Um, <laughs> what are some underutilized mental health resources? I know everyone, every time you say you're having like mental health issues, they say go to a therapist. But sometimes, you know, therapy is expensive or not accessible to people. So what are some free or, you know, little thought of resources that people can access? So, I mean, I guess, you know, I think if you're talking um, in, like, if I'm talking, like, to the student community, I think look at what behavioral health has to offer. There's lots of groups, which is a nice way to build community. And these are all free of charge to you. I think utilize the behavioral health communities that you have. Um, I think you know, look for things that are, that are free. Like even, you know, Calm was an app. Like look for apps that mm -hmm. are free that can, because there's lots out there for like, you know, free mindfulness meditation. Um, I think there's, you know, lots of good apps where they can send you like an affirmation for the day. Uh, I think those are really important. Um, I really like, you know, I, I use this sometimes when I work with students around, um, I think they're called angel cards, but there's lots of great cards out there with quotes about life that mm -hmm. really can get you to think about yourself. Like, what's your greatest strength, you know? And if you can't buy something, then what are, you know, make up questions for yourself. Make a little card deck of like, you know, and every day you take a card, you take a random card, like, mm. have you connected with friends today? Um, let's take 20 minutes to deep breathe, you know. Um, have you been, you know, I know it's complicated with COVID, but I think as much nature as you can invite in your life is important. Yeah. Um, I think eating healthy, um, they, they, they have what's called mindfulness eating. It's like, think about the ingredients. Like, don't just make your food, like taste your food and smell, mm. smell the seasonings before you put it in there. You know, if you're mixing something like get in there, you know, I think that's really <laughs> important. I mean, you know, cooking and, and music can be very therapeutic. You know, if you have a pet, love your pet, um, you, you know, can be, have you taken a walk for today? I think taking walks, even with a mask, um, is healthy. You need fresh air. You need yeah. to find ways to have, um, fresh air. I just think it's a really important, or, um, if you're someone, given the pandemic, you're not comfortable going outside, bring nature to you. Again, lots of literature on the influence of nature. Buy some plants. You know, nurturing something can be yeah. so healing, you know. Um, if you can, even if you're in an apartment, get one of those outside gardens. Create a garden for yourself, something to take care of. Um, lots of little neat tips I give for, like, stress management, like, so other people don't know, like, don't tell anyone, but in my drawer, I have Play-Doh. <laughs> Just Play-Doh. I do have Play-Doh. <laughs> <laughs> See, I have Play-Doh, I have puzzles, I have colored pencils. Crayons. You have bubbles? I have bubbles. I, I have bubbles. I love bubbles. <laughs> you know, and it's cool because these are things, like, they could be little, so no one knows you have them, but if right. you're having a stressful moment, like, like you can't be upset and blow bubbles you just can't it's just, I don't know if there's data but you just can't you know or play with some play-doh like 
that's what we're missing in our lives as adults. We don't play enough. And, right. you know, we're, all we do is work, you know, we don't have recess. And I know with everything going on, it's hard to find recess, but what is recess? Or um, the other thing is create a space in your home that's a sacred space. Like, even if you're in a studio apartment, like, have a favorite chair in a cor- with your favorite blanket, your little candle, your little mm-hmm. Buddha, you know, your little book of sayings, you know, you know, read, you know, anything to have a little corner, a little space, like, you know what, you know, back in the day with kids, they'd be like, you know, take a little safe space time. Well, as adults, we need to create our sanctuary, you know, right. where we can almost, and you can do this in a studio, you know, you studio apartment, you just sit in your space for your 20 minutes. It doesn't cost you anything. Breathe, write some gratitude, and tell yourself something positive, even when you're not feeling it. Affirm yourself. Affirm yourself. I can't say more about that. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today and talking to me, Dr. Levy Bell, right? You got it. (laughs) Well, Um, thank you for having me. I wish you much, much success with your podcast your beauty brains and baggage i love it (laughs) thank you all so much for tuning in dr levy bell was such a delight to talk to if you go to bu um i definitely recommend setting up an appointment with her or you know hitting up her office hours because she is just as welcoming and open and and jovial as she was on this recording and it was such a a joy to, to speak with her my hope for this episode is that you guys learned more about the impact on the angry black woman stereotype on our lived experiences as black women and how it harms us mentally how it harms us spiritually and how hard it is to navigate it sometimes and i hope that we were able to take on this topic that's very serious and should be taken seriously but i hope we had some humor i know we definitely had some humor i digress (laughs) um Well, definitely had some humor in there. I I hope this creates a dialogue and understanding and for all, you know, non-Black people and, you know, non-Black women uh, that you kind of understand where we're coming from and what we're going through. And I hope that you guys can better support the Black women in your lives, whether they're close to you or literally strangers you just met. And next week, stay tuned for episode two unpacking being black abroad from specifically a trinidadian perspective i took this opportunity essentially to link up with my friends and talk so i have one friend who is studying in the uk one in france two in canada i'm in the us and we had our our other friend who's studying in trinidad to give a home team perspective and my goal for that episode really is to kind of see how race and ethnicity functions differently. Because like I said before in part one, when I moved to the United States, I really did not understand how race would impact me. And even now in Trinidad, like people, you know, don't really put the identity of blackness on me. Like I'll be light skinned, but nothing more, nothing less. It's just that Uh, since I'm, you know, closer to whiteness in that sense. But here I've never been anything but black to people. Like 
if anything, people think I'm Dominican, occasionally like Afro-Latina, but that's really about it. So I've never had that sort of white privilege. I've had light skin privilege, I guess, but not that white privilege that I guess I had in Trinidad. And so I was thinking about that because I was talking to my parents and they were like, well, you haven't been oppressed like black people in this country have been. You didn't grow up here, you didn't struggle up here, et cetera. But my thing is just because I did not grow up here, did not struggle here in that, you know, the way we see in the media, that does not mean I do not struggle. Like that does not mean I do not have systems that I'm navigating, you know? And I wanted to kind of have that perspective because I feel like when we talk about, and this is a very nitpicky thing, I feel like when we talk about, you know, Caribbean experiences, usually it's the first gen, second gen kids talking. And it was very important to me to have Trinis like from Trinidad, born and raised, talking about what it's like to be an international student and to look at how differently race functions here as opposed to back home. And it's so funny to me because the things I was complaining about when I first moved, when I was 13 and 14, my friends now experienced their freshman year of university. So this conversation is gonna be very interesting. Um, I am so looking forward to putting that out there. And I will see you guys with that next week, Friday. Tune in, share, comment. I love seeing your comments. Come in my DMs. You can give me episode suggestions, whatever have you. But thank you so, 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 so much for tuning in. And I will see you.